This morning, uh, we'll be talking about the doctrine of conversion. And last week, we talked about regeneration. And one of the things that I mentioned was that there is, in fact, a difference between regeneration, which we all know um, is when you're born again, right? When, when the Spirit makes you born again. There is a difference between that, right, regeneration, and conversion. First of all, uh, we define regeneration as an act of the Holy Spirit in changing the soul of man from the state of sin and death and transferring them into a state of grace and salvation in Christ. That's regeneration. Regeneration renews the will of a man in a way that draws them to God. Now, hopefully, you're able to see the logical progression Right? As we've been going through the study of uh, the doctrine of salvation, hopefully you're able to see all the different categories that we talked about and how each one progresses in a, in a certain order. For example, for example, we began with election. Then we went into effectual calling. Then last week we got into regeneration. And it's that order that uh, is important to keep in mind as we think about how God saves us. And now we're getting into the one after regeneration, which is this topic of conversion. Again, this order of events are important because they help us to see what God is actually doing in man in order for salvation to be possible. For example, how would fallen man ever have faith and repentance if he first does not have a new heart to desire it? And that's why that regeneration aspect has to be, that regeneration uh, point has to be before uh, faith and repentance. God has to awaken the soul for him to even desire to repent, to leave this world, to leave sin, and to place his faith in Jesus Christ. The order of these events help to protect the truths that are explicit in the Bible, such as man's fallenness, right? Why are they fallen? And how are they to come to salvation? And also the, God, the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Keeping that order, understanding that order, helps us to see that God's sovereignty is the first act in salvation. In order for anyone to come to saving faith, God has to act first and not man. Now, oftentimes, these categories are used interchangeably. You know, you might say, oh, uh, you know, when was your conversion or when were you born again? And you mean all of these things at the same time. And that's understandable. Um, when someone talks about conversion, sometimes they mean regeneration. And again, that's understandable. Sometimes when, you know, the average person thinks back on the time when they first became Christian, they often describe it as one big event. And it includes all these categories, as opposed to, you know, sitting there and breaking them all down when you talk to somebody about your testimony. Um, we ask each other all the time, tell me about your conversion, and, and that's a legitimate question. However, it's always helpful to define our terms, right? Uh, how, what do we mean when we talk about conversion? Um, do we mean the whole package, or do we mean specifically when you came to uh, a self-knowledge of salvation? It's also important to think, how does the Bible talk about conversion? And again, that's my goal today, to talk about how the scriptures uh, define conversion. So I'll be talking about this topic in two categories, and you'll see it in your handout. The first category is biblical concepts of conversion. And the second one is characteristics of true conversion. So let's speak. Yes? If possible, I don't want to derail you. Sure. Would it be possible, because this is new uh, territory for me, uh -huh. the difference between regeneration and conversion, mm -hmm. if it was like 
Yeah. Yeah, excellent. In fact, uh, that's actually, um, I, I, actually, I'll state it um, as I go on, but just, just, just to kind of bring it out there from the beginning, um, let's put it this way. Regeneration is God's work in you. Um, conversion is your response to God's work. That's probably an easier way to, to kind of put it. Uh, but you'll see it more and more defined as I, as I go on. Uh, I think it's important, again, to restate that uh, conversion, though it may seem in many ways to fall in that same category uh, of regeneration and effectual calling, again, like I mentioned, is in fact uh, distinguished from both of them. Regeneration, like I just said, is an act of God alone, while conversion consists of both God's act upon men, right, in turning them, and acts done by men as they themselves turn. So, this is where God's sovereignty and human responsibility come together. Yep. Sure. Um, regeneration is an act of God alone, while conversion consists both of God's act upon men in turning them and acts done by men as they themselves turn. All right. And again, when men turn, it doesn't mean that they're cooperating in their salvation. It just means that we see a real life uh, uh, action take place in the person's life. You see that person literally give, give up a life of sin. You see that person weep over their sin. You see that person repent. And these are human actions. Of course, we, we confess that God is the first cause. So what's the difference in between conversion and sanctification? Yeah, good. So sanctification is a is very much tied to all of it. What I would say is it, it's a separate category in and of itself because sanctification is a continual process of holiness. So a lot of things that you see in conversion is, is, actually, is, is actually what's going on in your progressive sanctification. So, uh, for example, this act of repentance for the first time may be your conversion, but you're still in sanctification. You're still doing some of the same things. Like you're still turning from sin. You're still... Uh, uh, there's still man's action being involved in, uh, in, in uh, turning away from idolatry, uh, growing in your faith, uh, up, uh, sitting under the means of grace. These are all things that are part of your sanctification. But the initial, tr the initial change from regeneration to uh, a new life in Christ is that conversion point. So, uh -huh. Right. You do everything else, all the good works you do. Yeah. It's always God. It's always right. repenting and doing, doing good. Yes. It's always turning to God. It's a continual process. It's not Amen. like a one-time thing where you first convert. Amen. Amen. Yeah, and uh, well said. I think it's, it's a sanctification that's expressed. What you see in conversion is expressed continually in sanctification. So let me get Emily here. I just have a question. Sure. Yeah, yeah, because it's the initial, it's the initial transfer from a, a life, a, a, dead, a dead life to a life that is alive. So this is the putting off of the old man, and this is the putting on of, uh, yeah. of, of Christ. So that's like kind of the difference. That, conversion is the first fruit. Yes. Is yes, yeah. So in fact, I would even go and say that what you see in sanctification is pretty much a constant uh, 
converting. <laughs> the, the only problem why, the only reason why it's so confusing is because when we, when we throw that term conversion, we often think of just that initial period of time, and, and rightly so. But, uh, but in, in reality, you're constantly changing, and the, the acts that take place in conversion are continual, like you said. They keep happening. Uh, I remember when I first became uh, aware of the doctrines of grace. I thought I was born again, again. And uh, I wasn't born again. I was just sort of uh, experiencing a, a new phase in my conversion, if you will. But again, it's, it's, that's a, an example of what sanctification is. Yes? Yes. And I think it, it ties into what we see in uh, Philippians uh, 2, 12 and 13. It says, yeah. work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, mm -hmm. our part. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Yes. This part. Yes. Amen. Yeah. You see sort of that working, uh, us being active, but God really uh, behind the scenes working it out. Let me go on. <laughs> <laughs> Um, in conversion, man is active in his response. Uh, a great passage that shows us this is Acts 11.21, where it says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed, what does it say? Turned to the Lord. Right? This is a description of what men did in response to what God had already started in the hearts. So here we see this act of salvation begin first with God, right? It starts by saying, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And then it follows with belief, right? It says, and a great number who believed. And then it ends with an active response from man, turned to the Lord. Uh, here's another verse that shows active response, active response from man. Uh, it says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. See, it just sort of a, another description of man actively turning to the Lord, even though we know that the, uh, behind it was the Lord working in the heart. Uh, and all, this is the problem where we, when uh, we often read the scriptures and we don't consider the whole counsel of God. We look at these passages and we say, oh, you know, Arminians are right. You know, God is not sovereign. It's something that we have to do. But you, you have to reconcile the fact that God is sovereign. Um, and, and you see through the development of, of this theology as you consider all of scripture, where we can, we can come to this position where, yes, God is sovereign, but in conversion, man still responds. There's a real response from man. Uh, you know, both uh, God's sovereignty and human responsibility working at the same time. Uh, and and we, we can land there confidently because we know that it reconciles all these, all these points, the fact that God is sovereign and man is still responsible. Here we see again the emphasis on man acting and turning to the Lord. Now, I want to begin by showing you the different ways that this concept of conversion is seen in Scripture, right? Starting with the Old Testament, there are two words that are generally used in the Old Testament. One is the Hebrew word nacham, hope I pronounced it right, which, it sounds good, uh, which expresses deep feeling of either sorrow or grief. Right? This is a word that is closely related to what we think of repentance or regret. This word is used both to describe man, but you know what? It's also used to describe God. Uh, we'll see, you can see here in Genesis 6.6, 6, it says, And the Lord regretted 
that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Uh, another passage, Exodus 32:14, and the Lord relented from the disaster he had, that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The word Naham is there, and it's, it's this idea of regret, repentance, um, and, you know, we, we know that, uh, I don't, I don't want to get into it too far, but we know that God uh, is not one to repent, but this act of him changing his mind is, uh, is sort of his, his act as he responds to uh, the creaturely world. Now, I don't want to get too deep into that. You can talk to me afterwards about God's unchangeable character. <laughs> I'll break it down for you, but, but uh, let's keep going. 1 Samuel 15, 11 uh, is another verse that says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. So again, you see that regret, um, which is a change of mind. And that's one use that we see of conversion, because conversion is uh, specifically tied to that word naham. And you see that used in the Old Testament in that way. Another word that's used in the Old Testament is the word sheb, with an H at the end, sheb with an H, which is, uh, which is actually the, the most common word for conversion in the Old Testament, which essentially means to turn to, or to turn around, or even to return. Right? And this word is often seen in the prophets, where it refers to Israel's return to the Lord. Right? Sheb. Uh, it's usually a return after they departed from God. In other words, the, the Old Testament uses this word as a way to express some sort of returning to God after you've sinned or, or you've been distant from God. Um, again, this idea of conversion is seen also in the words of the, the prodigal son, where he says, I will return and go to my father. I will sheb and go to my father. Or I will turn around, in other words, and return to my father. And this is, this is part of what it means to be converted. There's a turning around, a going back to the father. Going into the New Testament, the most common word, there's many, but the most common word uh, is metanoia. And if you look at that word, metanoia, uh, the word nos, right, is linked to noia, nos, which is connected to the word genosko, which is to know. Uh, so again, this usage of the word is very close to, um, or, or very much tied to the use of the mind when it comes to conversion or repentance. Um, so the way that we ought to understand conversion, at least in the New Testament with that kind of wording, is that it is to be understood as a repentance with a real consciousness involved, right? Not just a feeling of regret. You know, like when, uh, when a kid, you know, takes an extra cookie and mommy told him not to take that cookie, you know, he feels, he or she feels bad, but he, he or she feels bad because she got caught. Um, but when a person has a real understanding, an intellectual understanding of what they've done, they, they, uh, they, they take upon themselves a level of guilt. Um, and this is something that is expressed in that word metanoia. So again, the word metanoia means to know, to know after, or to have an after knowledge, right? After the event, there's a recognition, a reflection, 
um, a, sort of a change of mind as a result of the after knowledge. And so that, again, that word is closely tied to your mind. Um, all these things are captured in that word. And when we read these words in the scripture, right, the words that I mentioned from the old and the, the, ones, the one that I mentioned in the new, it gives us a rich understanding of what conversion is, right? This is a doctrine that is very experiential as well as uh, mental, right? When you convert, there's aspects of the mind, as we, as we just read with the way that it's used in the New Testament, but there's also experiential aspects of it that touch on, on man's emotion, touches on man's heart. So, Again, conversion is, is to be both understood theologically, but also experienced internally. It's a response and an action that man participates in. It doesn't just happen to you like regeneration. Conversion is, is very much a part of the experience of man, um, and, and he feels it. He responds. Uh, he responds in an action that man participates in. Uh, it's very real to man's senses. And although God is the primary agent of salvation, as we mentioned before, conversion is very much the experience by man as he himself turns to God in repentance and faith. Now, the Bible often speaks about conversion in different ways. For example, there are times where we see national conversions. And these are conversions that happen by a whole, you know, with a whole nation. Right? They change their ways. They, they turn from their idolatry and they turn to serve God. Uh, we see these conversions happen uh, in the days of Moses, Joshua, uh, through the times of the book of Judges. Uh, we see the people of Israel continuously turning back to their God. And after they experience the judgment from God, they would repent of their sin and return to God. The book of Judges, we see Israel you know, in this cycle, this vicious cycle where they would turn to God and then they would go back to their sin and idolatry and then, you know, God would judge them and then they would go back to God. But th those were examples of uh, national conversion. And we see this clearly um, in, uh, in Jonah, uh, after Jonah preaches. The Ninevites repented of their sins and God spared them. Uh, look at this verse. It says, Jonah... In Jonah 3.10, it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the, of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is a national conversion, a turning, the whole nation turns to God. Now, it's important that I note that these kinds of national conversions, especially in the Old Testament, were probably more like moral reformations, <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it would be hard for me, at least, to conclude that God spared a nation because, because each and every single person in, in that nation individually had a change of heart. I, I don't think that was the case. However, the nation as a whole did make a decision to turn away from whatever sinful activity they were involved in, uh, and, and they submitted to God's rule. And so when God was looking at that nation uh, altogether, corporately, you know, he, he removed his judgment on them when they turned to his rule. One of the proofs that these national conversions were not true changes in the heart of each individual was the fact that these nations would usually go back to their old ways. And that's, that's the same thing probably even with America. As we, you know, we pray for national conversion to some degree, 
where God would bless this nation if we would uh, humble ourselves and submit to his rule. Um, but we know that that doesn't ultimately solve the problem because each individual that is part of the collective of our nation needs to be born again in order for us to see a nation that is truly, truly converted in the ultimate sense. And we won't see that till the kingdom comes. Um, but again, that, that goes to show that the advancement of the kingdom of God is, is, is not political in that sense. Um, it's a transforming of each individual heart. And those who are born again are part of that kingdom. And until, that, un until we see a world where everyone is born again, um, we won't see the fullness of, of the kingdom of God um, in, in the ultimate sense. Uh, <clears throat> so, um, again, we see, we see that uh, national conversions are just sort of a general uh, turning to God. Uh, in fact, this is, the, the, this is what we see in the book of Judges. This is the history of Israel in the book of Judges. And it leads me to my next category of conversions, which uh, I would call the te a temporary conversion or a superficial conversion. Temporary conversions <clears throat> or superficial conversions are, um, are superficial conversions that may only have passing significance, right? It doesn't flow from a real change of heart. Oftentimes, this may mean that the individual who assumes that they have true conversion in their own life are really just deceived. This means that the person may have gotten excited or even intrigued by the Christian worldview or even the concepts involved in Christian theology. I would even add that the deceived individual might have been captured by the unique fellowship that we have or the distinct culture that we have in church life. There's nothing more beautiful than the way that Christians love each other, the way we eat with each other, some of us, um, and, and the way that we have deep discussions with one another. These are things that, you know, oftentimes we look at and we say, oh, the world hates us. And it's true, they do. But there, there, there's, there's a lot of beauty in the fellowship of the saints because uh, we, are, we are submitting to the, to the goodness and the beauty of God's uh, commands. We, we meet together on the Lord's Day. We worship together. These are things that are objectively beautiful, regardless of how you feel. And some people see that. And some people are intrigued by that. And they desire to join such a fellowship. But their hearts have not changed. <clears throat> uh, we see in the parable of the sower, when Jesus speaks of this kind of person who receives the word, and even receives it with joy, but in reality, it takes no root in them. So when the day of tribulation and trial comes, they fall away. Look at me, look at, me at Matthew 13, verses 20 through 21. Can someone read that? As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately perceives it with joy. Yet he has no root in, his, in, in himself, but endures for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of Immediately he falls away. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, this is a tough reality as Christians uh, to know that many who claim to be true converts <clears throat> are merely just that, converts. Uh, and that's it. They just came to uh, sort of an uh, external Christianity and not a real true conversion. Deep inside, they were never really born again. And if you really think about it, there are certain character traits about Christians that can be easily learned, right? Uh, 
There are even words and phrases that are commonly used in Christian circles that can easily be picked up. Words like born again, midweek study, disciplined. Those are words that we throw around. Uh, Quiet time. I got to get it in in my quiet time. (laughs) Alone time with God. You know, people don't know what that is. And and it's easy. Like when you come into our circles, they they pick it up and they say, yeah, yeah, I got to have my alone time with God. Um, Devo. I got to have my Devo or my devotion with God. Um, uh, I got to be careful because I'm backsliding. (laughs) Um, Am I bearing fruit? These are Christian terminology. Um, Blessed. Prayer time. I gotta have my prayer time. Um, <clears throat> let me pray for traveling mercies. Um, uh, let, can someone pray for my unspokens? Um, s- <laughs> uh, small group. I gotta. I gotta hurry up and get to my small group. Um, f- fellowship. You know. You name it. All these words that we we have. And you know what? I think it's great. Honestly, I think it's it's actually what we're called to do. Have have a culture that's formulated by theology, a, a culture that's formulated by the principles of the Bible. And this is, this is the fruit of it. I can go to a church anywhere and, and, and see s- very similar things. And that's, that's great. We are, uh, we are a culture that is uh, informed by principles of the Bible. Hi. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good that's a good uh, point. Especially if uh, if if there's a person who uh, is deceived and they think they're a Christian internally, they're really not. Um, you know, they, they won't face trials on account of the word. Um, specifically in the context in the context, I would imagine that in a world where Christians were being persecuted, the uh, it, it would be it would be a lot harder for you to fake Christianity. Yeah. So uh, I think in our context, we're kind of getting there where, uh, yeah, you wonder why would anyone want to fake it, uh, especially seeing the cost of what it means to be a Christian. Um, So in that sense, I think uh, if a person is deceived, the truth will eventually come to light. Um, And the trial um, may not be a trial that is uh, life or death, but you'll see that they'll leave the faith if, uh, if, if tests come that are brought about by God and they're sort of, they're in a position where they have to show, uh, you know, their true colors in a sense. But, yeah. I have a really good example, uh-huh. sadly, of someone who was very involved in the church. And he was um, a youth leader and just, everyone thought so highly of him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he prayed, he did everything, he walked Yeah. Sure, yeah. Appendicitis. Okay. And after that, he turned away from the life. Yeah. So now he's a universalist. Yeah. Um, and everyone's jaws dropped because they were thinking, wow, this guy was amazing. Yeah. You know, and he just talked the talk and everything. Right. But and then you go, it goes to show. Yeah, and those, those trials uh, will bring bring, you know, your true colors out into the light. Um, and if I, if I were to say like a modern uh, thing today would be, um, you know, if, if, you, if, you're, if you claim to be Christian and you're really not one, 
as you go, as, as you go into the colleges, as you, uh, as you go into the world, and it's time to, to show where you stand on certain positions. Um, let's just say on same-sex marriage or, or abortion or whatever, you know, any, any of those hot-button topics. When it's time to, to show your, you know, your position and you, you uh, on the account of the word, you, you can see that most people just sort of give up the faith because they see that all of a sudden these things are making them less connected to the world. That's one thing I always say. If you're a Christian, you're not going to be numbered among the cool kids. You're not going to last too long in the culture until somebody asks you, hey, what do you think about homosexuality? And you tell them the truth about it, what the word says. And as cool as you thought you were, you had the latest sneakers and the latest fashion, and you were in style and you were an urban missionary in today's culture, you're going to see all of a sudden that you're not as cool as you thought you were. The world doesn't like you because of what you believe. Um, and it doesn't mean you got to be a bad person or like have, have a rude personality. It just means that when you hold to the word of God um, and, and the, the uh, truths that we see Christ proclaim, the world doesn't like you because they don't like Christ and they don't like his word. So there's that, there's that sacrifice there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, this is great because I'm preaching on this. Excellent. I'm to try not to get it. Okay. <laughs> let, let, let me know if I'm getting into your sermon. No, I'm sorry. No, this is, this is great. Excellent. Um, but, but one of the things, you know, through studying this, this passage and the other soils as well, but um, in particular this one is, um, this is why it's so important for Christians to get grounded immediately in the Word of God Amen. and in the truth of what it means to follow Christ. Yes. That, that part of the problem is that we are proclaiming a gospel that only preaches for the most part, in America. Yeah, that's right. If, if your gospel can't preach in other places in the world, it's not the true biblical gospel. Amen. That's a good point. And so we, we have to understand, like I'm going to go into Luke 14, where Jesus says, you know, if, if you're not willing to be hated by your family and so mm-hmm. on and so forth, you can't be my disciple. Mm-hmm. I mean, who, who says that nowadays? Yeah. You know, that, that, that doesn't come out. That's but right. the reality of it is, when Jesus goes on in that, in that uh, analogy and says, you know, which of you who's going to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost? That's right. And that's that's what we have to help people understand, even in our evangelism, mm-hmm. is helping them to see this is what it means to follow Christ, mm-hmm. so that people aren't misled into thinking, what does it mean to truly, yeah. you know, follow the Lord? And like you said, mm-hmm. in many places throughout the world, they know if I profess this, mm-hmm. I'm essentially just putting a death sentence on myself. That's right. Um, but yeah. Yeah, excellent. Yes, excellent. Okay, let me let me get back. So, um, <laughs> so uh, if you really think about it, there are certain character traits about Christians that, like I said, can be easily learned. And again, like I, I think it's you know when people who are not true Christians they come in and they kind of learn our language and learn our culture. Uh, you know, these external things are not sufficient proof that a, the person is truly uh, converted. Um, at the same time, these characteristics should never be, uh, these characteristics that I just mentioned, you know, the, the things that, you know, you can spot a Christian and sort of know what, what their language is and things like that. Those are not true marks of true conversion. 
Matthew 7, 16 through 18 says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn, bush, thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Uh, another verse, John 13, 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is speaking about love towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. So those passages, these passages that I just read, tell us how a believer is to be recognized. Now, this doesn't mean that we should go on a witch hunt, finding out who are true believers and who aren't. Uh, if anything, these verses indicate that we should be patient and trust in God, knowing that all things will eventually come to light. People will bear fruit and we'll see what, what that is. A bad tree will eventually produce bad fruit. The faithful ones will produce good fruit and display also love for one another. Uh, this also, and this is, this is a point that I really want to make sure I get it in. Uh, this speaks very much to the importance of the local church and, uh, and the role that a church has in the life of a professing Christian. Many professing Christians today are merely, merely just self-proclaimed Christians. And what I mean by self-proclaim is that they're the only ones that would testify of their own Christianness. Um, now, it's important that you be aware that you are a Christian, right? If they're self-proclaiming Christians, hey, you need to self-proclaim. You need to be able to know that you're a Christian. However, the real question that you should ask yourself is, how are you aware that you're a Christian, right? What kind of analysis have you gone through to know for certainty that you are one? Are you a, are you a Christian simply because you happen to think so? Um, are you the best person to analyze yourself spiritually? You're the, you're the, the top uh, judge on, on whether or not you're a Christian. So Christians are called to join a local church for that reason. The local church is where your profession of faith is put to action. Worshiping in the church on the Lord's Day, right? The midweek studies, serving the body, being kept accountable under shepherding pastors is the setting in which God gives you that assurance of faith. Here's an example. Let's look at Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Um, are you guys, you, you, I'm sure you're familiar with this passage. Um, this is often the passage that people go to when they want to reference the order of church discipline, right? When the church um, is, is, is addressing someone's uh, specific sins. I'll read it for the sake of time. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. And it says, truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where there are two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, here we have an instance where if a person is in sin, they should be confronted. 
And if they refuse to listen, they should be confronted by two or three witnesses. And if they, if they still do not listen, they should be told to the church. And if he or she still refuses to listen to the church, then they are to be excommunicated and counted as unbelievers. Now, this is the context in which any professing believers should be in. You should be in a church where this can happen, right? Anyone who claims to be a Christian should be a member of a church where they can be held accountable in that way. And in this setting, a false convert can't last long as a false convert, right? His fruit will bear eventually, and he will either not continue in the church or eventually be excommunicated. Now, here's the interesting part. The verses that oftentimes are uh, misunderstood and misused, verses 18 through 20, where it says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I remember thinking about that passage and, and uh, thinking, binding and loosing, is this some sort of uh, cowboy lasso kind of... Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> It says, uh, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, if two, if two of you agree on earth about anything, uh, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Again, this passage is often misunderstood. Many Christians throw this verse around without considering the context. Keep in mind that this verse is still regarding church discipline. What is Matthew saying here? Matthew is saying that the church who is rightfully submitted under the authority of God's word, the church has the authority to certify the authenticity of a person's conversion based off of the principle that they see in that passage in Matthew 18, according to Christ's very own instruction. In other words, a person can't declare themselves to be a true convert by their own opinion while remaining autonomous or cut off from the church. This is why we read in verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This verse means that when a body of believers are gathered and have been a witness of this unrepentant member, they can be sure that God is on their side and not on the side of the unrepentant member. Because where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. I don't know if that's confusing, but I got somebody that's uh, a better theologian than I am, and I'm going to quote him, and he'll probably explain it better than I would. Um, John MacArthur, regar uh, in, in regards to this verse, he says, The sum of it all means that any duly constituted body of believers acting in accordance with God's word has the authority to declare if someone is forgiven or unforgiven. The church's authority is not, uh, is not to determine these things, but to declare the judgment of heaven based on the principles of the word. <clears throat> when they make such judgments on the basis of God's word, they can be sure heaven is in accord. In other words, whatever they bind or loose on earth is already bound and loosed in heaven, if we go according to God's word. So when the church says the unrepentant person is bound in sin, the church is saying what God says about that person. When the church acknowledges that an, a, a repentant person has been loosed from sin, God also agrees. So again, this idea, and th that was the end of the quote there, 
uh, again, this idea that a person can declare themselves to be Christian by their own opinion while remaining disconnected to the church is not biblical. On the contrary, the church has been called by God to be the place where your soul is cared for and kept accountable. They determine where you're at. And I know this seems like, oh, wait, the church has authority over my soul. No, not in that sense. But when it comes to uh, testing to see if you're uh, a true Christian, God has given those gifts to the body. Um, God has given church discipline. God has given the shepherds. God has given um, all the leaders that he's uh, ordained in the scripture. And in that context is where you can see where you're at. And, uh, you know, I always, I always think about the internal testimony and the external testimony, right? You may feel a certain way, but it's also important that other people can verify that, right? You can trick yourself in being a Christian and really you're just a false convert. Uh, so, uh, this, again, this places the importance uh, of your spiritual growth to the uh, membership of, of the local church. Can I say something? Yes, please. Yeah. I think it's very important to consider that if, in fact, it is a doctrinally sound church. Yes. Because there are churches that are not doctrinally sound. Amen. Do not teach or practice the word of God. Yes. And they practice church discipline where someone may be a true believer. And right. And it ends up with uh, a total disaster. Amen. I think Amen. if we don't look at the whole picture. Right. Yeah, that's, a, that's an important part because, uh, again, it, it's in accordance to God's word and in accordance to Christ's uh, commands on how that, to be, how that ought to be handled. So very, very good point. Yeah. Um, you, you said that it applies to say if somebody is going astray, mm -hmm. but that they need that accountability, that perspective that people see in their lives. The converse is also true that sometimes people are too hard on themselves and they think they don't amount to anything and they, they, you know, spiritual attack, that kind of stuff. Yeah. If they're within the body, if other people are going to come around and say, it may seem that way, but this is this is what I see in you. Right. When it's verbalized, it gives encouragement and hope. Uh, yeah. What is it? Uh, encourage the weak? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, amen, amen. I mean, people have all kinds of perceptions about themselves, and that's a sin, too, where uh, you can have a morbid, introspective uh, kind of, you know, perspective about yourself, and it requires the church to call you out on it and say, hey, um, you think you're in sin, and you're really not in sin, and, you know, there's encouraging words to keep you accountable on the, on the other extreme as well, like you said. Absolutely. Yes. Right. Right. Amen. Amen. There is that uh, uh, the spirit testifying within yourself as well. Yeah. Good point. I'm going to try to wrap this up in five minutes. Um, so pray, pray for me. Uh, point number two. Characteristics of true conversion. I spoke about national conversion, temporary or superficial. Now I want to talk about proofs of true conversion. 
2 uh, Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Uh, this is a good passage. Even though the, the passage itself, the point of the passage was not to describe true conversion, but it still gives a great description of true conversion. It describes a godly grief of repentance that leads to salvation. And as I mentioned before, it's a change that is rooted in the work of regeneration and is affected in the conscious life of the sinner and also the uh, sort of the, the volitional uh, side of, of the sinner. And this is all done by a work of the Spirit. The New Testament word for conversion, like I mentioned before, was metanoia. And it places emphasis on the mind, right? In other words, true conversion is very much a theological position in your mind, which then as a result affects the emotional and volitional positions. So uh, think about those three elements, the, the mind, the emotion, and the volitional. Beginning with the intellect, with, with the mind, there's a change of view, right? Which is a, a mental recognition of sin involving a personal guilt and a sense of helplessness. There's something that you recognize with your mind, and we see that uh, in Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So there's this recognition through the law of your sin. Now, oftentimes people look at the law and they won't recognize anything. But again, a true convert um, recognizes uh, the weightiness of the fact that he broke God's law. And he understands intellectually that he's, he's disobedient to God and he needs salvation. The second was the emotional element. In the potential convert, the person moves from a recognition mentally that he sinned against God to an emotional element where there is a change of feeling manifested into like a sorrow for sin. And we read this kind of thing in Psalm 51, 1-3, where it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And there's, a, there's an expression of the heart that uh, we would call repentance, right? Repentance is part of that conversion experience where the person is filled with sorrow, uh, uh, you know, towards his sin. Now, uh, like I said before, uh, in 2 Corinthians 7.10... If, if after that, fo- that sorrow, if after that doesn't follow up uh, the, the next element, which is a volitional element, if, if that doesn't cross over to that volitional element and you stay in your sorrow, uh, you know, it's described as a worldly grief where there, you don't do anything about it. Um, and, and the scripture says, says that that produces death. It's a sorrow um, that is not a, a real repentant sorrow that leads you to action. And so again, this, this leads me to that third point, the volitional element. And this element follows repentance, and it, con- it consists of a change of purpose, an inward turning from sin, and a disposition to seek forgiveness and cleansing. You, you don't stay in the fact that you're a sinner. You move from that point, and you cross over into seeking for that Savior. And that Savior, obviously, in Scripture, God reveals that through His Spirit, that Jesus Christ is your only hope for that. We read something similar in Jeremiah 25, 55, where it says, Turn now, every one of you, for... Yes, sir? There's no 55 in Jeremiah. Oh, 25. 
25? Yeah, my bad. Thank you, sir. Is, is there, is, oh, I didn't tell you the verse? Yeah, it only has 38 verses. Oh, 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 oh. I think it's 25.5. 25.5, yeah, I'm sorry. I added an extra five. I think when I was doing the PowerPoint, it was really late, and <laughs> babies were crying, and someone needed to change the diapers. Um, but let's read God's word, and uh, let's see what it says. Turn now, every one of you, from his evil ways and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you, and your fathers from of old and forever. Uh, this turning away from a life of sin is an act of faith, meaning that one can't turn away from one thing and not turn to something else. You, you can't just turn from something and land nowhere. The scriptures calls us to turn away from our wicked ways, our past, and, and cling on to Christ. Um, we are at 1020. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you that you have uh, given us these truths from your scripture. Uh, thank you, Lord, that you have uh, shown us uh, some of the, in, the plumbing or the underground stuff that, that are part of these categories that we see clearly in the Bible. Um, whether the words and the terms are used or not, we see these concepts in Scripture, and um, they, they all point to our need for Christ. They all point to our helplessness and our dependency upon you. If you do not act first, Lord, we would not respond. But then we see passages in Scripture that cause us to leave the world, to put away our sinful nature. We know that these are things that are acts of the Spirit in our hearts, but there's that conversion experience where we, uh, we act against a lifestyle of sin, that we move forward to clinging on to the truths of the gospel, to clinging on to Christ as our only hope. We put away sin and a life of sin, and these are things that you've called us to do initially and also continuously as we grow in our sanctification. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we pray that... Uh, with these truths that they would shape our hearts even now as we get into worship. Um, may we praise your name and honor your name and glorify your name in our worship to you uh, as an expression of gratitude for these, these truths. So we thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.